Welcome to the Association of Child Protection Professionals podcast, a weekly podcast where we, alongside guest hosts, share with you the latest in children and families safeguarding. There has never been a more important time to keep up with safeguarding, but with the government regulation changing daily, we realise that not all frontline professionals have time to do so. That is why we've created these podcasts to give you what you need to stay informed. Today, we have a special episode for you. In these special episodes, we take a more focused look at a singular issue that you need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we are taking the time with the professionals at the forefront of this issue. But first, let's hear a few words from the AOCPP's team. Hello, I'm Peter Sybotham and I'm a trustee of the association and co-editor of Child Abuse Review. And I'm really excited to be able to tell you about an event that's coming up on August the 5th of an online conference that we're hosting on abusive head trauma. This is something that has come out of our work with the journal And our special issue of the journal for this year is on abusive head trauma. And we've had two guest editors, Vince Paluski from the States and Gabby Ottoman from Sweden, have pulled together a really great special issue with papers looking at work on recognition, response and prevention of abusive head trauma. When we saw the content of these papers, we thought it would be really great to pull this learning together in an online conference. It's free for members to join and £30 for non-members. And places are filling up fast. So we hope that you will sign up for this and join us on the 5th of August for this really exciting conference. Thanks very much. Hello. I'm Wendy, the Chair of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. In today's episode, I'm talking with Dr Sidebotham about the Child Safeguarding Practice Review. Peter is a retired consultant paediatrician and emeritus professor of child health from the University of Warwick Medical School. As an academic paediatrician, he specialises in child protection and was a designated doctor for child protection and for the child death review in Warwickshire. Peter's research includes studies of unexpected child death, including sudden infant death syndrome, and work on the child death review and child maltreatment. He has worked on several national analyses of serious case reviews and is the author and editor of three books and several chapters and has been published extensively on the child abuse and child death reviews. Peter is the co-editor of the journal for Child Abuse Review as well as the Board of Trustees, the Association of Child Protection Professionals and the Lullaby Trust. Most recently, he is a member of the National Child Review Practice Panel, which is what we're here to talk about. Peter, over to you. Thank you, Wendy. Well, it's really good to be here for this podcast. And yeah, I've had a long association with the association and it's been a really supportive organisation to be part of. So it's great to be able to say a little bit about some of my work and particularly talking today about my role on the National Child Safeguarding Practice Review Panel 
and our most recent National Safeguarding Practice Review, which has looked specifically at sudden unexpected death in infancy among families where children are known to be at risk of abuse or neglect. So if I start by saying a little bit about the panel itself, this panel was set up a couple of years ago under the auspices of Working Together 2018 as a, a multi-agency independent panel we maintain an oversight of the child safeguarding practice review system across England advising local safeguarding partners looking at the learning coming out of safeguarding practice reviews and of serious incidents where children have died or been seriously harmed related to abuse or neglect. It's been really exciting being part of the panel and that's been a great opportunity and privilege to be able to, to work with a great group of people looking at some of the learning that is coming out across the country. And it is obviously deeply sad and concerning that children continue to die and are seriously harmed through abuse or neglect. But I think what we are picking up is huge amounts of really good practice across the country and lots of learning coming out of these reviews of cases. As many of you will be aware, there's been a shift over the past couple of years from the former system of serious case reviews, many of which seem to get quite bogged down in just some of the bureaucracy and repeated learning of the same things without really achieving a lot of change. And what we've tried to do with the new child safeguarding practice reviews is have a much more flexible system that is proportionate and enables some of the learning to come out very rapidly. So a lot of the cases are just dealt with through an initial rapid review and a lot of learning comes from those itself without necessarily needing to go on to do a full child safeguarding practice review. Have you seen an improvement in some of the documentation that's being sent in? Because this has been going on for a little while, whether it's getting embedded and it is getting more concise. Yeah, we, we have. It's been really encouraging just having that dialogue with local safeguarding partners, seeing that in, in spite of COVID and the lockdown, actually people are doing really well in notifying the cases as they come in and getting the rapid reviews done. And often we're finding the rapid reviews are really done very well and summarise quite concisely what are the key facts and circumstances of this case and are able to identify some immediate learning and then set out plans for how they're going to disseminate that learning. And that's been really encouraging to see that. There are obviously other cases where the rapid review identifies, well, there is still more to draw out of this and we need a more in-depth review. And we're looking forward to seeing those completed reviews coming in. We've not had very many so far of the completed child safeguarding practice reviews, but those that have come in, again, I think have been really quite focused on drawing out the learning and what practically can be done to try and embed this into good practice. That's really good to hear. Yeah, I, I think sort of one of the other main aspects of our work as a national panel has been identifying, well, what are some of the key themes that are coming through the notifications and rapid reviews that are pertinent issues that have national implications that we need to look at at a broader level? 
So we've now undertaken two national thematic reviews of safeguarding practice. The first related to criminal exploitation in adolescence, and that was published, oh, was it earlier this year or the yes. end of last year? Earlier, uh, this year? earlier this year. And yeah, some really important learning coming out of that as to how we can engage with quite vulnerable young people look at how we support them, how we support local areas in working with them and reducing some of those risks. And that was clearly one of the biggest groups of children that we were seeing referred through the notification system. The other really big group of children has been the babies. And what we found was that in the first 18 months of our work, we'd had 40 cases of sudden unexpected death in infancy notified to us. And it seemed, yes, this is a really important issue that we need to try and get to grips with. Why is it that there are still babies dying suddenly and unexpectedly, and that they seem to often cluster in some of these most vulnerable families? One of the things that I found just drawing on some of my own research and background in child death review and sudden infant death syndrome was the really exciting shift that we'd seen over the early 1990s with a dramatic drop in the number of sudden unexpected deaths in infancy. It went from over 2,000 babies a year dying in the late 1980s down to less than 400 by the late 1990s and that's dropped even further to around about 200 since deaths per year in England now. So we've seen that dramatic decline followed by a a further steady decline and yet alongside that we've also seen a shift in the demographics so that more and more these sudden infant deaths are occurring in families where there are recognised vulnerabilities and risks, whether that be the impact of poverty, socioeconomic deprivation, overcrowding, chaotic family circumstances, domestic violence, parental mental ill health, a whole range of different factors that seem to be there in the background. And I think just really devastating that that's where we're seeing a lot of these cases now. That is what I've experienced the peak in those areas, particularly with drug and alcohol and unsafe sleeping. Yeah. So I think a lot of a lot of our listeners will recognise that kind of pattern. And working with these families within the multi-agency sort of safeguarding arena, you recognise, well, it's not just risks for abuse or neglect, but there are also other risks for these children. And that includes the risks of sudden infant death. And so We've been seeing some of these cases come in and be notified to the panel. And looking at the cases, I think one of the things that does come through clearly is that it's not that these children are dying as a result of abuse or neglect. We're not picking up that these are horrendous, abusive, neglectful parents, but these are very vulnerable families in whom all those risks are there, and particularly it seems when there are changes to some of the routines, the family routines, where there are different circumstances arise that mean that the families just don't seem to be able to or are unwilling to follow some of this safer sleep advice. 
One of the things that came out of both the case reviews that we looked at and the literature review is that often the, these parents, when circumstances change, whether it's they are in an abusive, domestically violent relationship or whether they have been evicted from their home and are in temporary accommodation, sometimes they feel their only choice is to sleep with their baby because they don't have a safe place for the baby to sleep or they feel that if their child is ill or they've got a threatening partner that actually having the baby close to them might actually make it safer and therefore what we know about the safer sleep advice seems to go out the window and often it's in those out of routine circumstances that these deaths occur. And so I think then the sort of key learning from this is that we need to be able to listen to parents, to form that trusting relationship so that we can understand, learn what their circumstances are, learn what the constraints are that they're trying to parent under, and often again sort of get the impression these are loving, caring parents. They want to do what's best for their children. And yet, just coming in with the standard routine advice, giving them a lullaby trust leaflet, whatever, is not going to work. And so we need to listen to them. We need to be a lot more flexible in our approaches. We need to give them information that, that makes sense to them. Okay, one of the real difficulties with sudden unexpected death in infancy is that we can say, look, we know there are risks with co-sleeping, particularly if you've been drinking or taking drugs. But if we're not able to say, well, what are those risks and why is it a risk? Actually, it has less of an impact. So if we can sort of outline, yes, there are very real risks that you might fall asleep. And because you're less alert, because you've been drinking or taking drugs, there is a risk that you might smother your baby. That's a much more hard-hitting message, but one that people can understand and relate to. And equally, we know that new mums are going to be extremely tired with broken sleep and they willingly sort of take them into the bed as well, don't they? So it does cross Absolutely. all the Or they get out of the bed and feed them on the sofa, but then fall asleep there, which is, again, even more dangerous. Yes, yeah. So through looking at these cases, what we've sort of tried to do is come up with what we've termed a prevent and protect practice model. And we're really grateful to John Harris and Jeff DeBell, who were the two lead reviewers for this review, who've done an incredible amount of work engaging with local areas, with practitioners and with families, and come up with this prevent and protect practice model, which recognises there's effectively a, a continuum of risk, right through from all families through to the more vulnerable families where there are situational risks through to specific risks related to the changes of routine and so on and therefore we need to target our advice our support our listening according to whatever level this particular family is at and from that then it becomes an issue that goes beyond just this is a role of the health visitor going in and doing the six-week check and giving a leaflet. No, this is everybody's responsibility, whether it's the social worker who's aware of some of the family circumstances or a new partner coming into the home, whether it's the GP happening to see the child because of an illness, whether it's an early years worker who's looking after the toddler and engages with the family in a different context. We can all play a role in supporting these messages, listening to the families and helping them with thinking through, what am I going to do when things are different? 
That's really exciting. And that fits with the LGA work that is going on and local government in relation to the early years, the first thousand and one days. Yeah. Um, joint response. I mean, that's, I, I don't know how joined up that has been with that, but if it hasn't been, it's something that I'm sure will be picked up on. Yeah, and, and no, I think I think it is, and it's something that we've been engaging with a whole range of different stakeholders to look at, okay, where where does this sit within other work that's going on? And I think sort of one of the key things is that safer sleep is not just something that you can deliver in isolation. It is part of the overall package of how do we support parents in good, effective, safe infant care. So we've been working, for example, with Public Health England, and they're doing a refresh of the health visiting program and, and so on. So looking at how can this be really embedded in that, working with local safeguarding partners to look at, well, what can you do at a local level, engaging all agencies in developing your local plans, tying this in with strategies, for example, for tackling neglect, strategies for minimizing physical abuse, all sorts of different areas where, where this can actually become embedded in that wider infant care and development agenda. It is an area that we have to keep revisiting because as a practitioner we had a cluster of deaths invested within the partnership, a lot of work in relation to just core paperwork and assessments and it did make an impact but you have to keep refreshing it, don't you? Because we started seeing figures slip up again. Yeah. Um, it's something that has to really be refreshed and just core practice, doesn't that? Yeah, I think so. And I think, again, we've seen a lot of evidence of really good practice and some good initiatives being done in different local areas. And again, through my work with the Child Death Overview panels, have seen a lot of that been embedded across the country but I think we mustn't lose sight of it because it's so easy for other things to then take a higher priority and this slips off the radar and it is something we need to keep coming back to embedding reinforcing those messages looking at innovative ways that we can work with children and families. Mm. It would be really good to be able to collate through the association some of the good practice so we had the tools ready to share is there anything that really springs to mind in relation to the good practice? I think one or two examples that we'd seen where people had embedded the safer sleep messages within a wider strategies for tackling neglect and so on. So that's sort of probably the key thing, I think, that, that it is not seen in isolation and a lot of different agencies, champions that are coming together to work with this. There have been one or two areas that have also looked at behavioural interventions and, and I think there's a lot of promising work starting to come out with that but in fact one of our key findings from the review we've suggested a couple of areas for further research and one of these is research into behavioural interventions to try and see okay are there particular strategies that would be particularly effective in this specific area. Mm. As a health visitor, that is something that we wanted to work closely with the midwifery service so we could have the conversations pre-birth yeah. because that's where it absorbs more and to talk about, not to be depressing, but to talk about the risks and how are they setting up their room and, you know, help with the bonding, the communication with professionals yeah. worked much better in some of the most complex families where perhaps you haven't been able to work with them before because they are open because of the new hope of the baby. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And again, we saw good examples of midwives and health visitors working very closely together. Also examples where there have been pre-birth child in need or child protection issues and the midwives and health visitors work very closely with social workers. Again, I think one of the key messages coming out of this review is, is sort of recognising pregnancy as a reachable moment. Yes, this is a time when every pregnant mother does engage with services where they do want to do what's best and therefore we've got some real opportunities to get in there and work alongside them and listen to them. I mean right back in the day I'm talking nearly 30 years working with a project that we set up linked with special care with street workers because of the mm. condition the babies were being brought in and we knew that if we could reach out to them beforehand to make sure their medical needs were addressed but equally talking about their vision for the babies going forward. And we had some really, really positive, you know, results. And that was purely out of the willingness of partners to work together. It was a time where we had a social worker attached to the hospital and we could really reach out to those families. But that is something that if we can get that grounding right with all families where there are vulnerabilities and just make it normal practice. And like you say, it has to be accessible, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Lots of really good opportunities there. So are there many recommendations that come with this report? No, we've really tried to keep the recommendations very few and slim. What we have set out is some key learning for local safeguarding partnerships. And in fact, with that, have set out a number of questions that the local safeguarding partners can ask themselves about what's going on locally. And sort of really using those as prompts to look at and build on what they're currently doing. So so that's sort of one of the key areas at the sort of local level. There's obviously a lot of learning for individual practitioners and we've tried to sort of keep that clear and punchy. And then we do make three national recommendations. So the first is around the overlap between the child safeguarding practice reviews and the child death overviews And so establishing some closer links between the new National Child Mortality Database, really exciting work that that they're doing in terms of collating data on children's deaths and specifically around sudden unexpected death in infancy and registry for that. So we're, we're sort of looking to improve those links so that we've got a much clearer picture of who are these babies who are dying and and what can we learn from them. The second one relates to Public Health England and their refresh of the Healthy Child Programme and making sure that these messages are embedded within that as well. And then the third one is we heard from a lot of areas that practitioners on the ground really wanted some clear tools to how do we use the Safer Sleeper messages effectively with some of these most vulnerable families. So to develop a set of shared tools and processes to support frontline practitioners. So those are our sort of key three national recommendations, if you like. And along with that, two areas for further research, the one around behavioral insights that I've mentioned, and then the other around practice-based research as to what really works effectively in this country in the kind of context that we're dealing with to reduce sudden infant deaths. So I think we need a lot more on-the-ground practice-based research 
in this country. So we're putting those out, we're looking at ways that perhaps we as a panel might be able to support some of that work, maybe working in partnership with other organisations and funders to look at that. So I think there's a huge area that we could be looking at there. An exciting opportunity for our members to consider actually doing a research paper because I'm sure we have absolutely a lot of professionals from all disciplines that have been frustrated by this process and have developed research into practice but perhaps not published so just to sort of mention that we do have the opportunities certain grants to support some of our practitioners to do further research if they want to consider and equally I believe the association perhaps could have some in conversation in relation to this report once it's out. It comes out on the 16th, doesn't it, Peter? It's published. That's right. That's what we're hoping for. Um, so, yeah. so, so it would be good to have some conversations with generally some of our members to see what's actually happening, because my vision is to try and collect some really good examples of how they've learned from these reviews from different areas. So it will be nice if we can continue those conversations. I think that would be really great. And and again, I think you're you're absolutely right. The association provides that network that would really enable that. And I think if we could, again, really draw on some of that good practice, see what is being embedded around the country and learn from each other would be great. Yes, that's really exciting, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want to discuss in future episodes, please email us at hello at aocpp.org.uk. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, including the free membership trial that we are running for the next few months, then visit our website, childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.